listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Good morning and peace be with you. Uh, For those of you who weren't here at the beginning of the gathering, my name is Cole. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is really good to be with you this morning as we continue to walk through uh, the letter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica. Um, Before we uh, jump in, let's spend a moment in prayer asking God to bless our time in the Word. Father, we come to you and ask that you, in your infinite mercy, would reveal to us the truth of your word, that you would encourage us with the promises of your word, that you would fasten our hearts to you, that you would build in us deeper wells of faith and trust, that you would show us the way of the Christian life, that we might follow you faithfully. I pray that if there are men or women in this room who have yet to trust you, that your beauty and glory and grace would shine forth through your word this morning, that they might be drawn to you, and that you would draw all of us nearer you this morning as we spend time in your word. Use my mouth, though fallible, to proclaim your excellency unfallible. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, um, as we look at Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, and here in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, we're getting a, a picture of Paul writing to Christians that they might not be hopeless, that they might not be hopeless, because he knows that if they are to seek hope in this life only, that their, their seeking is in vain. Because death is proof that life can't satisfy. It's the ultimate humbler. Um, I, have, I have seen loved ones die sick and weak, almost unrecognizable versions of their, their former selves. I've seen young people die with their whole lives ahead of them. I've known those who have died in tragic accidents and even those, those old saints who have died from merely simple complications of aging bodies did so without the fullness of their faculties, with the inability to, to accomplish physical tasks with mobility and strength, relying deeply upon the help of others. I've known some people who have died feeling, feeling good about the life they have lived, the, the faith that they had, the things that they saw and accomplished, but I have never known anyone who was satisfied upon their dying breath. There were always regrets, always sorrows, always things left undone, sights unseen, experience left on the shelf for next year, suffering yet to endure before that final and terrifying breath. This is true for all people. And, and for those who don't have a firm foundation in Jesus Christ, it's an utterly crippling reality. This life cannot satisfy. Though we are told that things like marriage or wealth or the, the pleasures to experience, experiences to have, trips to take will yield these happily ever after moments, what we know is that it's not true. 
There is no happily ever after in this life. We need something more. And even though I think at the core of us, though, we know we need something more, I'm convinced that much of the church in this day and age, including many of us in this congregation, at times even me, are far less concerned with eternal things than we should be. I know this is true for me. When I read the Bible and consider the implications of the gospel and what it means to be united to God and Christ, to, to live as a Christian, I always want to think about the joy that's available to me now, the satisfaction of knowing God and serving him, the delights that this present life has to offer, even sanctified delights in, in the context of Christian living. And this instinct isn't totally wrong. The the truth revealed in the Bible is clear that life with God is infinitely better than life without God. Life with God is infinitely better than life without God. The Bible gives us portraits of a life of feasting, of sharing with others, of serving meaningfully, of making a difference, that, that life with God involves love and forgiveness and meaningful communion with others, that the blessings of God's mercy, the truthful understanding of the way the world works and the, the nature of humanity as the creator himself has revealed it to us. And so all of these things strike us and in the depths of our soul, meeting the desires of our hearts, these desires to become the sort of people that we know instinctively we were created to become. And this is good. The Christian life is the good life. Jesus says so himself repeatedly, saying, blessed are those, insert part of the Christian life. Insert those who follow me. Blessed are those. And what do we want as humans if not the good life? It's what we are all wanting, but, but even so, the crux of Christian proclamation over more than 2,000 years regarding the good life has not been rooted in our experience of the five to ten decades that the most of us get in this life. The good life painted for us in the scriptures and throughout church history is not one of how to live your best life now. It is rooted in something more. The Bible's authors used a lot of ink and a lot of parchment to talk about things yet to come. Things that would come in the future, things that that they would not necessarily see in their days. The New Testament authors, including Jesus himself, spoke at length regarding the coming of this heavenly kingdom, eternal life in paradise with God, the completion of God's redemption, and a day in which sin and suffering and sorrow will be no more. And, And today's passage is one of those. One of those passages about future things, hard to understand things, difficult things to grasp, and And we have to ask ourselves, why was this such a concern for God and his chosen authors? Some of you read passages like like this one in 1 Thessalonians, and you're deeply interested. You you find it fascinating. You, You like to consider the debates regarding exactly how it ought to be interpreted and what we're to expect. You 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 read these passages and you take notes and, and you read books about them, but you probably don't read First Thessalonians four, thirteen through eighteen devotionally. You read it intellectually. It's stimulating. It's interesting. 
And some of you avoid these passages altogether. They're confusing. You don't understand them. You find them frustrating. You wonder why they matter to you. How does a passage about floating up into the sky with all the Christians throughout history to meet Jesus do anything for me today? Right? I've got bills to pay. I've got sinful habits to fight against. I have relationships to work on. I've got family problems to deal with. But earlier, I mentioned that the crux of Christian proclamation for over 2,000 years has not been that the good life is to be experienced in the five to 10 decades that most of us get. The question is why? Well, for one, because at the end of those decades, even Christians die almost always in suffering, illness, violence, loneliness, fear. And number two, because the Christian life as outlined for us by Jesus and the apostles is a difficult life. Now the secular world seeks happiness in this life. Why? Because they know that death is coming and they have no hope beyond death. And so what does the culture tell us to do to experience the good life? Well, there's lots of different versions of the good life peddled to us in the culture um, from radical hedonism to, to things far less radical, but almost all of them involve experiencing the most pleasure in this life as possible because life is short, right? These are the platitudes. Life is short. You only live once. But the Bible calls Christians to be self-sacrificing, to abhor the love of money, to be sexually pure, to be generous, to surround yourself with needy people who take more from you than you will ever receive from them, to devote yourself to a ministry that will almost always be opposed by the culture you live in and make you look like a fool by your peers. Jesus promises his people that you will suffer. He invites you to take up your own cross to give what you have to others, to resist defending yourself from those who hate you, to endure all sorts of evil for the sake of him and his kingdom. So church, if our hope for the fullness of, good, of the good life is in this life, we're fools, right? It, it can't be in this life. If you don't believe me, believe Paul, 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen. If in Christ We have hope in this life only. We are of all people to be most pitied. What Paul is saying is the life that Jesus has called you to live is only the good life if you have hope beyond this life. Because if it's just this life and you're giving everything you have away, you're enduring suffering, you're facing opposition, you're being imprisoned, you're being killed, whatever it is that might come of you from being a Christian, and that's your hope is to experience that life, you're a fool. You're pitiable. But the crux of Christian proclamation for over 2,000 years has been that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of the universe that he has taken the sins of his people, that they might be forgiven, redeemed, and united to God forever, and that through faith in him, we are given eternal life in union with God. The vast majority of eternal life takes place after your death, right? That's simple math. By the nature of what eternity means, it means that this life now is a drop in the bucket of your eternal life with God in a created order that is fully renovated, marked by zero suffering, zero sin, zero sadness, your life on this side of Christ's return is a drop in the bucket. So if you're a Christian in the room and your hope is primarily in the next few years 
to experience satisfaction. You have very misguided and small expectations of the glory, grace, and gravity of our God and his gospel. The good news is good news about eternity. It's not just good news about how to live your best life now. In fact, if you're a Christian in the room, you will live your worst life now. If you're a Christian in the room, the things you're going to experience or have experienced in the decades you get before your dying breath, that's as bad as it ever gets for you. Like this is the worst. And Jesus says it's blessed, that it's good, that it's happifying. So God has given us in, in the Bible encouragement regarding what is to come because he understands that in order to endure faithfully and joyfully in the midst of this present life of suffering, we need something to hold on to, something concrete, something trustworthy, something glorious. And this is especially true for our Christian brothers and sisters throughout history and throughout other parts of the world who experience far worse conditions than we do. You know, tell the martyrs to live their best life now. The promises of eternal glory allow us. They allow us to release our need to find satisfaction in this life so that we can run full speed ahead at the glory of God in ministry, service to others, and radical self-sacrifice. And so the Thessalonians were walking through hardship. They were facing opposition. And then Paul wanted to encourage them because of a specific thing that was happening among them. Their beloved brothers and sisters in the face, some of them were dying. And so they were enduring this. And Paul wrote to them and he says this, but we We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. If if you are remembering kind of the things Paul has written so far, this is a big transition. Because almost everything Paul has said so far has been under the, the pretext of, I know you know, but I'm going to tell you. Or you have no need for me to teach you about this, but I'm going to give you a reminder or an encouragement. But here, he knows there's something they don't know. I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep. So this implies that the Thessalonians either were asking questions through Timothy, who had been writing to Paul, or or that Paul just knew, because he was run out of town and didn't have time to complete his teaching, that the Thessalonians were uninformed about what happens to, to Christians who die in the faith. And he doesn't want them to be uninformed about them because he knows it deeply matters for this life to know what is to come. And so, so he refers to those who are asleep. I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. And some of you are like, what on earth is he talking about? Just wake them up. Um, <laughs> but but he's, this is a, a term that's used in the New Testament to describe dead Christians. Um, to be asleep is to be a a dead Christian because sleep implies a waking up. Though the body is asleep in the grave, it will not be forever. It will be raised unto glory and unto eternal life. And now that is not to mean that what the Bible means is that when you die, you fully are asleep and unaware of what's going on. It's clear that, that our souls are given to God in paradise immediately upon death. This is clear in the scriptures, but our bodies are asleep until the return of Christ. 
Paul wants the church to be informed about those who are asleep. And, and he gives this reason that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. See, Paul knows that that the Christian gospel, the Christian worldview should change everything about the way that we believe and experience the world so that we are not like others, those others who grieve without hope. Non-Christians have no hope in death. They can seek to comfort themselves with empty platitudes, but the painful and hopeless nature of death is crushing. Death leaves one to reckon with the reality that their loved one is gone forever that the legacy they left is probably less affecting than they would have liked, and and it leads one to consider their own life and their own death. And apart from a concrete hope after death, this is crushing. Because life, apart from hope after death, life is a vain effort to avoid suffering and to experience fleeting pleasures, which ultimately and always culminates in suffering and in death. That's a hopeless reality. Now, we don't know exactly what it was that the Thessalonians believed about those who had died. Um, But Paul knew that, that they would be despairing if they didn't have the truth about what to believe about them. And so he wanted to encourage them. Now, they likely probably had some concern about the fact that they were expecting Christ to return, and their brothers and sisters who had died in the faith, they were probably worried that they were going to miss out on that. That, like, that, that your, my, my mom or dad who died in the faith is, is going to miss out on Christ's return, that, that she's going to miss out on eternity. And so Paul is writing to alleviate that sort of concern. He, he wants them to mourn with hope, and some have taken this passage to mean that Christians shouldn't really mourn at all, that we should be emotionally unaffected when loved ones die. And that is not at all what the Bible is saying. It's not at all what the Genesis to Revelation shows that God's people doing in the face of death. It's not what Jesus does in the face of death. But what it is saying is that we shouldn't mourn like others do because we have hope in death. We sang about it this morning. We sang taunts at death this morning. Because we know it doesn't win. We know there is something beyond death. And so we can endure the death of loved ones with hope, knowing that there is something more. So if we're hopeless in the face of death, that's a real concern. He goes on in verses 14 and 15. He says, Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, meaning that God has revealed this to Paul, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So what Paul is saying is that because Jesus died and rose again, the resurrection here being key, we can be sure that the dead in Christ will be raised with Christ. So we are united with Christ in the fullness of his person and his ministry. We're united with him in his death. We will be united with him in his resurrection. We experience the fruits of the resurrection in this life, but we will experience bodily resurrection upon his return, resurrection unto glory like he has experienced. And so this is our hope. Now, this is a passage that's just dealing with what do we consider about Christians who have died. But elsewhere in the scripture, it's clear that when Christ returns, both Christians and non-Christians will be raised from the dead. 
But this passage is talking about being raised unto glory rather than raised unto condemnation. And so this is for Christians, about Christians, to encourage Christians. When Christ returns, the passage says some will be alive on the earth. And these Christians, hopefully some of us in the room, will never taste death. But, but hear what he says. He says, it's those who have suffered unto death who will have precedent in greeting him and joining him in glory. This is beautiful. So Paul says, I'm writing to you so that you aren't hopeless regarding those who have fallen asleep. And then he says, actually, when Christ returns, they get the glory first. They precede you in in this procession uh, into Christ's return, in this experience of transformation. And this is totally compatible with the gospel of Jesus in which he says, the last shall be first. Right? Those who suffer unto death, those who die in Christ, who give their lives fully joining him in the grave, will be the first to experience the glory of the resurrection. This is good news for those of us who mourn, and it is good news for those of us who will die. Paul says those who are left will not precede those who have fallen asleep. There is much hope for the dead in Christ. This is, this is a reality that leads Paul to write to the Philippians that, that he believes that to live is Christ, but to die is gain, right? One, if I die, I'm with Christ now in paradise. And two, when Christ returns, I get the glory first. I get to greet him first. I get to see him first. It's why he can run unashamed at the glory of God, forsaking his life, forsaking all else. Passage continues, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So this description is consistent with the rest of the New Testament regarding Christ's return. It's, it's almost identical descriptions throughout, both from Jesus himself, from Paul, from John. This is what we're to expect, that Christ will return the same way he departed. He ascended in the glory clouds to the heavenly places. His body ascended, and now his body will descend in glory clouds. And when he returns, he will do so in the fullness of majesty. All of the imagery in in this description, it's meant to convey that this is the moment of ultimate consequence in the history of the universe. It will not go unnoticed. Christ will be shouting a command. The archangel will be singing. The trumpet of God will be playing. Glory cloud descending. Like it's going to be big. It's going to be public. It's not going to be a secret. The whole world will know what is happening when this happens. It is an announcement of the completion of God's work, his eternal victory, his final arrival. This is the final cry in which Christ finishes crying what he did upon his death, that it is finished. This is the renovation of the new heavens and the new earth being consummated and completed. And so as Christ is coming down from heaven in this glorious procession and descended, it says the dead in Christ will rise first. And so this is to say that their bodies will be renewed and restored as well as changed into eternal and imperishable bodies like that of Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 15. It talks about how the perishable body will be given to the imperishable body. 
Then it says that those who are alive will be caught up together with those resurrected Christians in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air where we will all be changed into glorious and imperishable bodies. And, and this is the kind of passage that just makes our head scratch a little bit, right? Like we're, we're, we're not so sure of what to make of it, but, but I'm convinced as is really just the history of Orthodox Christian tradition that this describes a, a physical future reality. Um, bodies will truly be raised from the dead. And then all of the church, every Christian throughout time and history and space will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And there are a couple words here that help us understand what's going on. The first is this word caught up. Um, In the Greek, that word really means like grabbed or snatched. And that's helpful because what's, what's happening here isn't that all Christians will see Christ coming and will say, I'm gonna run that way. It's, it's no, it's that Christ's glory will be so powerful that he will become the gravitational pull for all that is being reconciled unto him and that we will truly be swept up into the romance of the moment, physically gathered to him, that we will not be able to resist the love, grace, power, and glory of God in that moment, that we will be fulfilling every ounce of what God has created us to do as we are drawn to him in the heavenly places as they descend to the earth. The second word that, that matters is the word meet, to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, this word is used in, in Matthew 25 by Jesus as he gives the parable of the ten virgins in which he describes the second coming of himself as a bridegroom coming to meet his bride. And, and what happens upon his arrival is that that these ten virgins hear that he's coming, that the bridegroom is coming, and they run out to meet him, that they have a formal and excited celebration of greeting. It's not, they're not waiting in the house for him to knock on the door. It's that they know their bridegroom has finally come and they're running out to meet him. It's also the sort of language that would be used to describe a royal reception, right? Like if the king is coming to visit, You don't just wait until he knocks on the door. No, you're lined up on the drive, greeting him with fanfare, celebration, and cheers. And this will be the most glorious royal reception in the history of the universe. It will be the most glorious wedding reception in the history of the universe. We will be drawn out to meet him as he is coming and ushering the fullness of his kingdom to the earth. The Christian life and the life of the church is in many ways a preparation for the greatest wedding party of all time. We have dress rehearsal weekly. We have a meal that foreshadows the banquet to come. But all of it is a shadow. It's a mere hint of what is to come. And what we know about preparing for weddings is that it's difficult It's tiresome work. It's exhausting and burdensome and costly. And so when the day comes and the groom comes to meet his bride, there's going to be a huge party and we will all be swept up in it as the bride, the object of covenant love and romance. So Jesus' descent from the heavens to earth, it's the arrival of the bridegroom 
It's the commencement of the endless wedding party to come. We'll be caught up in merriment and joy and glory for the occasion. It will truly be the moment for which all of creation has been waiting since God spoke the world into existence. This will be the moment of ultimate relief, of ultimate release of tension, of ultimate climax of plot and glory. It is the fulfillment of everything. And we, brothers and sisters, we get to be there. We will get to be there and we will always be with the Lord in perfect happiness forever beginning on that day. And so if we wonder what it is that we're looking forward to, where it is that we're seeking satisfaction, it's not in this life. It's in the fact that this is going to happen, that this is the reality. Paul finishes by saying this, therefore encourage one another with these words. These words and other words like them in scripture have been used throughout uh, church history as the source of debate, the source of conflict, the source of bickering, the source of confusion. But Paul tells us why he wrote them, so that we might encourage one another with these words. He doesn't say bicker over these words. He doesn't say argue over their meaning. He doesn't say ignore these words because they don't offer specific instruction regarding how to live now. He says encourage one another with these words. That that brothers and sisters, that when we are struggling, when we are tempted to be hopeless, when we are hurting, when we are suffering, when Christ seems to be calling us to give far more than we have to offer, we encourage one another, not with empty platitudes about how everything is okay, but about the reality that our King is going to come with joy and with gladness to meet us one day. And all will be vindicated. All will be redeemed. So I invite you to serve the Lord faithfully. Give of yourself selflessly. Pursue intimacy with Christ and obedience to him, even in suffering, opposition, loneliness, and death if it is called for. But do so knowing that Christ will return. Your labor will not have been in vain. Your loved ones in Christ will be raised unto glory with you, and one day the work of ministry will be complete. All will be redeemed. All preparations will be finished and your bridegroom will come. He will come with glory and in victory. He will come to greet you and you will be caught up in the romance and power and the grace of God for all of eternity in that day. This is the greatest story ever told, the truest story ever told, and the only happily ever after that really exists. So don't quit. Don't lose hope. Hold fast. And, and don't think for one minute that this present life has anything that will satisfy you. Don't be tempted to flee from Christ for the love of pleasures or money or comfort or any other thing. And also don't despair thinking that you will never be satisfied because this is the promise that you will be forever. Eternity, brothers and sisters, is just around the corner. Take hold of your king as you prepare for him to come and take hold of you forever. Let's pray.